Yes. Um, let's go ahead and get started. Let's pray, and we're going to dive in, in, into what I hope is the either the I don't think we'll finish today, but we'll finish the, the between today's uh, lesson and next Sunday school's lesson, uh, the doctrines of grace, particularly uh, effective, particular redemption, as I'm calling it. So let's uh, let me pray for us, and we will uh, do a, a brief review, and then uh, we'll get into it. So, Lord Jesus, we are thankful. You are building your church, and you're doing it um, in part through our little local body, our little outpost of the kingdom of God. And so uh, we pray that as we continue to learn about the atonement and how you've spilled blood for your people in the person of Jesus Christ, that uh, we would consider these things sober-mindedly and helpfully, that it wouldn't just be some kind of intellectual exercise, but that we would be seeking the word of truth in a way that transforms our own lives and that gives us a more glorious picture of who Jesus is. And so uh, we ask you to work in us toward that end during this, uh, over the next 45 minutes or so. We ask in, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so let me just very briefly make, some, make a point that is almost exclusively for me being anal about details and precision and, and a point that probably no one is going to remember and everyone will immediately forget. And that is when I told you about Amaraldianism, I accidentally said Amaraldianism. Does anyone know that, remember what that is? What is Amaraldianism or Amaraldianism? Anybody remember that? Yeah? Okay, so that is going to be historically compiled, uh, something is one of the two strands of four-point Calvinism, okay, that has, a, that has a lineage in the Reformed tradition going back to Moses Amiro. That's called Amaraldism or Amaraldianism. Also, there's another model uh, by James Usher, John Davenant, it came up with hypothetical universalism, but essentially it's, the, it's an indefinite sense of an atonement, where the atonement was kind of making a cure or a vaccine. It wasn't actually actively purifying anyone. And I had a, I misspoke when I said that Amaro said that there was two decrees, one decree to elect on the basis of faith and then give the elect faith. What I meant to say is, and hopefully it's obvious, he, he had... Moses Amaro thought there were two decrees to atone for people on the basis of faith, conditioned on faith, and then give them faith. He did believe in unconditional election, okay? He didn't believe that uh, election was based on foreseen faith or anything like that. So, again, to return to a point that no one remembers, everyone will now forget, but I don't want the record to have me say something so egregiously wrong that Moses Amaro didn't hold an unconditional election. Okay, having got that out of the way, primarily for me, Let's briefly uh, take inventory of where we're at. So we left off looking at, last time at the Old Testament, particularly about, about the, the idea of a sacrificial offering, guilt offering, sin offering, flesh and blood, sacrifice to God for the sins of people. And we notice a, a couple of things. Number one, it's always effective. There isn't any examples in the Old Testament of there being a sacrifice that fails to produce its effect when it's actually done right, when it's done correctly. And similarly, there's no such thing as a sacrifice that's not done for somebody, even when it's all of Israel. Okay, in other words, there's always some kind of object for the sacrifice, for the atonement. Same thing with the lamb, the blood of the lamb and Passover, right? It was, it was, it was the blood of the lamb uh, to, to save, to rescue, to deliver from this angel of death, the angel of the Lord, uh, the, the folks just in that particular household. And that's why everyone had to take their household. So whenever you have this language, there is 
uh, a definiteness to it. Now, and I'm not trying to beg the question here. When I say definite in this exact moment, I'm saying that it, atonement is always for a concrete something or other. Sometimes it's for objects. We read the Day of Atonement. Uh, objects can be atoned for and ritually purified. But there's no such thing as atonement just for something. Just atonement in the abstract. Just atoned for who? For an empty set that may or may not have any actual effect or something like that. So atonement is effective. That is to say it works and it's actually for people. Okay, we talked about, again, the sin offering, which is unintentional. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the guilt offering, unintentional sin offering, intentional sins, all the effective language of forgiveness there. Then we looked at Christ in the New Testament, who is uh, the high priest, and he is the sacrifice that puts away sin uh, for all time. And we talked a little bit about 1 John 2, 2, the idea of propitiation involving um, removal of sin, expiation, but also wrath satisfaction, kind of in a bundle. And we also, when I preached on that a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that concept there in John. Then we talked about the reality of hell as retributive justice and vengeance. And this is really important. It's really important that we understand hell not as some kind of purifying fire, okay, that, that purifies your soul and gets you ready for the next stage. That's what a universalist would say. That might be a Catholic purgatorial kind of a view. But you don't have to be a Catholic to have a purgatorial view of hell. Someone like Jerry Walls would hold that view. Universalists like David Bentley Hart hold that view. That hell is not retributive justice. It's not God punishing and taking vengeance. That's not what it is. That's to misunderstand it. And similarly, that's not what happened on the cross either. Okay, We're, all, we're building up to this master argument here. Um, and so what you think about God's justice and the nature of God's justice, both in hell and on the cross, if Christ took to just be very non, uh, uh, not to be particularly nuanced about it, if Christ took on hell on the cross for sinners, particular people, okay, uh, then you have to say, well, what is hell? So your view of what hell is and the wrath of God in hell is going to be related to what you think happened at the cross. Does that make sense, that parallel? Okay, and then finally, we talked about the context of the discussion about definite atonement is the eternal purposes of God, not the historical outworking of that in history. If you'll recall, this was Again, Richard Baxter's objection to John Owen. He said, well, the, if, the effect, if the atonement actually forgave, okay, if it actually forgave sinners, actually, then the elect would never be uh, under the wrath of God. They would never be the objects of wrath, like Paul says. He's like, it potentially does that. They have to repent and believe. That was what he kept saying to John Owen over, uh, uh, well, not over and over, but he said it once, and it annoyed John Owen enough that he replied, uh, and what he said, and I think he is spot on, is that the context of this discussion is not the, how the atonement works in the run of history as it is chronologically, uh, as, the, uh, as redemption history unfolds chronologically. It is, what is the role of the atonement within the eternal purpose and plan of God? And this is where I gave this. Now, this was helpful. Oh, wait, did I take that? Uh, um, this is the pactum salutis, okay? Not the Historius, uh, the Historius Salutis, the Pactum Salutis, the covenant of redemption, the Trinit intertrinitarian covenant of redemption from the foundation of the world between the Father and the Son, uh, particularly, and not the history of salvation. Okay? 
God's purpose for the atonement within a larger framework of redemption in the salvific plan of God from the foundation of the world is the proper explanatory context for the nature of the atonement and not the atonement somehow conceived in an isolated manner or what it means or what means in the run of history God has chosen to reveal and imply the benefits of the atonement. Now, let me, do I have my little football play here? Yes. Okay. So this is helpful for some people and some people, <laughs> it wasn't. I'm just going to give this one minute. I'm just going to give this a, a, a one minute uh, 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 refresh here. So the, the question about the role of the atonement is a whiteboard discussion, not a gameplay discussion. All right. So actually, this is this looks uh, well, doesn't look exactly like the play Ohio State ran last night because the running back was on the other side. But essentially, um, essentially, w- when you're drawing up the play and you're in the huddle and the person got the whiteboard, this is how you're getting into the end zone. All right. Someone asked me which one was the running back last time. <laughs> okay. This one right here, the one that's going to run the ball. Okay. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know not everyone. All right, the, the person behind the C, the center, is the quarterback, hands it to the running back who runs through the line. The receiver's over there, they're blocking. Don't worry about them. But the idea is this is a running play. Quarterback's going to hand the ball off to the, uh, the running back who's going to run through that gap between T and G there. That's tackle or guard and go into the end zone. Okay, so you've drawn up the play, you've set it in the huddle. You say, what's the role of the running back? What's he going to accomplish? Well, he's going to score a touchdown. That's how he's going to accomplish it. He's, gonna, he's running the ball into the end zone break now they go into the huddle now a ton of things actually have to happen in the process for him to actually get in the end zone there's got to be a snap count there's got to be a handoff and his legs have to move and 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 people have to block and he has to extend his arms and carry a ball so well hold on see he doesn't automatically end up in the end zone he just potentially ends up in there's other things that have to happen yes if if you're talking about if it's a gameplay discussion yes at the level of whiteboard, this explanation is sufficient to explain how he's going to get in the end zone. The question about the nature and scope of the atonement is a whiteboard issue, not a gameplay issue. Okay? Because very obviously in the run of history, if you're looking at it from that perspective, the cross of Christ doesn't automatically make people Christians. Okay? It, it simply doesn't. Uh, many of you, uh, in fact, most of you can remember a time when you were not a believer. You were not a believer. So it doesn't somehow automatically confer salvation, purification from sins on someone in the run of history. And that was Baxter's point. He's like, well, that means the atonement isn't effective. It's only potentially effective. But that's because he's mistaking it for a, in the run of history. From that perspective, it is only potentially effective. But that's the wrong context. That's not what the person who's defending definite atonement saying says, they're saying in the in in the eternal plan of God, what role did the atonement serve? Not how that's going to be teased out. Does someone want to ask me a question about that? I know that is a little bit of a heavy lift, but it's a really critical distinction that avoids that avoids that answers. I think is a better way to say it. One of the most common objections that you get to definite atonement. No one wants to raise their hand. Ask a question. For whom is that distinction clear? Raise your hand. Okay. That's about 10%. That's pretty good. (laughs) All right. Well, um, if you're interested, 
come ask me. If not, that's okay. That's okay. But the idea is very clearly from the standpoint of history, just because Jesus died doesn't mean that people are automatically Christians. But that fact doesn't mean that the cross wasn't effective. It doesn't mean that it didn't actually forgive. It actually forgave. That's the role it had in the eternal plan. Just like the running back in this play, his role is actually running the ball into the end zone. Okay. Now moving on past that, um, to the, finally we're here to the master argument. Okay, Why on earth have I been talking about all this, about hell, about the wrath of God, about different kinds of justice, retribution? Um, what, am I, what, am, what on earth am I doing here? I'm setting up the argument. Now I've modified it from Owen because I think it needs improvement. I think it's clear we understand it this way. I'm going to walk through each step in this argument. First step, y'all know I like to argue syllogistically, this is how it's going to happen. Either Christ's atoning sacrifice effectively removed the eternal consequences of sin for the object of his atonement, or it didn't. That's an exhaustive dilemma. Either it did or it didn't. All right, now we're going to explore both sides of it. Let's explore the first horn of that dilemma. If it did not effectively remove the eternal consequences of sin for the objects of its atonement, then the nature of Christ's atonement shouldn't be understood as a perfect and final expression of Old Testament sacrifices for sin, where atonement actually accomplishes its intended effect. Okay? So on this, this is the claim of Amaraldianism, Amaraldianism or hypothetical universalism. It's saying that Christ, what Christ's atonement was, it wasn't just kind of the bigger and the better, this and that. It's qualitatively different. It was a different kind of thing altogether. Not a more perfect thing, not a fuller thing, a different thing. A categorically different kind of a thing than the sacrifices that we saw in the Old Testament. Unlike those, this one is not effective. Unlike those, this one is not for any particular set of people. One or the whole world. Okay? Atonement is not effective for anybody. He didn't die for anybody in particular. On this view, Jesus died for an empty set. Jesus died for an empty set, and then on the Reformed version, uh, uh, people get elected into that set. But the atonement itself didn't actually do the work. The atonement itself didn't purify anybody. Um... When we ask, who did Christ forgive and purify by his atonement? The answer is something like this. Not necessarily anybody. But everyone who believes will be forgiven. That, that's the answer. Okay? So it, it, it doesn't necessarily work. It's not effective. Okay? That's the whole point. That's why I've called it particular effective, effective particular redemption instead of definite atonement is because the real difference here is whether the atonement is actually effective in accomplishing its ends. And so this view, so if, if, if two is right, if Christ's atoning sacrifice did not effectively remove those things, then it's actually a totally different kind of a thing, not just a more perfect version and a fuller version of the kinds of sacrifices that came before it that actually accomplished their intended effects. That's why I went through the Old Testament pattern of this happens, this person's forgiven. This happens, purified from sins. Blood on the door, passed over. Atoned for sin, guilt removed. Okay? 
All right, so does, does that make sense? Does this make sense? That if this is the case, uh, if Christ didn't do that, that this is something different. However, step three, but Christ's atonement should be understood as a perfect and final sac- expression of Old Testament sacrifices for sin, where atonement actually accomplished its intended effect. Surely, surely our context for understanding the sacrifice of Christ is the Old Testament sacrifices that he fulfills. Surely, just as we might say to gloss it, not, not, again, not with a ton of nuance, that Jesus is the fuller and better and greater David. He's the seed of David, the branch of David, uh, uh, the root of Jesse, right? He, he is uh, the, the, the greater and better Moses, right, is the progression. He's also the sacrifice that all of these pointed forward to, not in so, as something that's totally different, but something that actually accomplished fully what these things only accomplished in a partial way in the run of redemptive history. When we read those verses, excuse me, back in the Pentateuch, and it says that that person will be forgiven, that really was true. The wrath of God was, they didn't have to get cut off from the people. They didn't have to get sent outside the camp. But it wasn't a full and final forgiveness because the blood and bulls of goats could never take away sins. And the whole idea of the sacrifice of Christ wasn't that he was something totally different. No, we look at these Old Testament sacrifices and that especially when we look at the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the perfect and final expression of these things. Okay, he's not something qualitatively different. He's not something qualitatively different. It's a matter of degree. It's a matter of perfection. It's a matter of fulfillment that these things couldn't do, but the fullness of this could because of who the sacrifice was. Therefore... If that's true, one, two, and three, it follows logically and inescapably that Christ's atonement does effectively remove consequences of sin for the objects of his atonement. That follows from one, two, and three put together. Okay, that's the first half. Questions about that? What do you think about that? Yes? Yes? Yeah. So, oh, so I want to be clear. They did atone for sin, and people were forgiven, but they were not. Uh, what we what is revealed progressively is that uh, that was not a complete answer to sin. So, for example, there would be a difference of someone not being forgiven and being cut off from the people of God sent outside the camp, whatever, goodbye. People are When people are forgiven in the Old Testament because of those sacrifices, they truly don't have to go back outside the camp. They're truly, in other words, genuine purification and forgiveness happen, but not ultimate and final. So yes, from the standpoint of, well, what about Old Testament saints? What about um, their sacrifice? Uh, what, what about on the basis of what were they saved? then yes, you have the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's actually a good point to return to the difference between what happens in the plan of God and what happens in the run of history. Because in the plan of God, I'm sorry, in the run of history, of course, the the sacrifice of Christ hasn't happened yet, right? It hasn't happened yet on Mount, uh, 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 during, in the transfiguration in, Mount, uh, in Matthew 17, okay? But you have Old Testament saints uh, who are clearly not, out of existence, they're in paradise, they're in Abraham's bosom. How on earth can that happen? Well, it happens because what has not come yet chronologically in history 
has already come on the plan, on the whiteboard, on God's whiteboard. And so it has, it has effectiveness forwards and backwards, in other words. Okay. Any other questions about this right here, first part of the argument? Does it make sense? Yes. Yeah, so I phrased it, it, it for the reformed person, yes. Yeah, so I'm trying to build it right here that uh, old, the, what, we're, we're going we're gonna to get to that that part is in the second part of the argument. But right now, it's just like, listen, atonement, biblical atonement period has objects. Could be everybody, could be one person, but it's got objects. There's no such thing as atonement for no one or potentially somebody. So we're, we're getting to that next part. Okay. Any other questions about the first half? We're going to move to the second half of the argument. The first, the second step. It's not really second half. Whatever. Okay. Here we go. Second step. The scope of Christ's effective consequence removed, having concluded that it is effective in removing the consequences of sin. We've already concluded that. That's the first step. The scope of Christ's effective consequence removing atonement either included every individual or only some individuals. Okay? Because no, no, no individuals was addressed in the first one. That's why he said, well, where is none? None was the first option. Christ atones for nobody. He atones for potentially everyone, but actually for no one. Effectively for no one. It doesn't accomplish. What does it accomplish? It doesn't accomplish uh, anything for anyone. Here, we've moved past that. No, it is effective. It does remove consequences. Now, it's either for all people or for some people. Because that's the only, those are the only categories left. All right? If the scope included all individuals, then no one will suffer eternal consequence, suffer the eternal consequences for their sin. Why is that? Someone tell me why that is. This is the heart of the problem. Why, why, why is this primitive? Why would anyone believe this? Yeah, why, 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 think, why is this a, pro, a plausible premise? Okay, yes, and so, good, so keep going. So why would that make this? So, no, not, that's not it. Why, if the scope included all individuals, how would it follow that, why would anyone think it would follow that no one would suffer in hell? Okay, so we're so we're getting that. Yeah, so so we're getting there. We're getting we're getting close uh, between Aaron and Asher here. I think we're we're, we're putting it together. The idea is this: um, if, ironically, by the way, almost everyone on all views agrees on this conditional statement. Okay, because if the atonement is substitutionary and penal, mean Christ stood in the place. And took the punishment for you and you and you and you and you. Okay? That's what happened. It was effective. He effectively did that. Then when you stand up to the final judgment, there's nothing to forgive. 
God has already forgiven your sin in Jesus Christ by effectively removing sin. Okay? God is a just judge. He is not going to punish people twice. He has already forgiven them. Okay? Imagine you get your... I don't want to make that joke. Imagine um, someone forgives your loan, totally forgiven, and then they ask you to pay it back. Well, hold on. Once it's forgiven, definitionally, there isn't anything to pay back. It's already been taken care of. I can't come after you for it. It's been canceled. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. If Christ uh, has, has uh, shed blood, and not just shed blood in some generic sense, okay, but, but as a result of that has eternally removed the consequences of sin for every single person on the cross, then no one will experience those in hell because hell is retributive justice. Hell is the retributive justice of God. That's why there has to be a match between what happens at the cross. Now, there have to be identity. And we talked about the difference between um, uh, justice as um, uh, identical return on sin and a fitting answer to sin. Because Christ did not suffer eternally, and he did not suffer without hope, for example. Uh, uh, um, but he nevertheless took, what we're going to say, took on hell on the cross. So that people do not, so that the, those who are the, the benefactors of the atonement do not have to take on hell again. That is the whole point. And that's why all the vengeance language is used in Romans chapter 12 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 of the retributive justice of God coming towards people, the wrath of God coming towards people. And so if Jesus took on that in a substitutionary way and in a way that effectively removed those consequences, then no one ends up in hell. No one ends up in hell. Let me just read this, uh, this part out of Romans 3. But now, that's the, the, best, the best part of Romans right there. In the, it, it really is. But now, after that miserable section about how everyone's a sinner and everyone's you know, throats are open graves and their tongues practice deceit, and there's no hope for anybody, even the most righteous person who is truly righteous by the world standards, by Jewish standards, a genuinely righteous person still is not righteous enough. So where is their hope then? Where is their hope? Paul says, but now there's a righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So they testify about it, but it wasn't back. It hadn't been manifested yet. It is the righteousness of God, not through works or obedience to the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So I am declared to be righteous through faith. There is no distinction. Everyone's fallen short. They're justified, that is to say, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And listen to this. This is going to tie into what, what Eli was asking. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he could be the just and the justifier of the person who has faith in Jesus. 
And so for the universalist, there will be fire to come, but it will be this purifying, refining fire, not a fire of judgment, which is why I spent so much time talking about hell being retributive justice and not some kind of rehabilitative program for the soul. Okay? And so if the scope of this effective consequence-removing atonement included all people, then no one would suffer consequences in hell. However, some people will go to hell. Some people will go to hell. They will experience the eternal consequences due their sin. The wrath of God. Therefore, it follows, the scope did not include all individuals. Scope did not include all individuals. And therefore, the scope of Christ's atonement included only some individuals, which is effective particular redemption. Questions about the second step here? I understand that I could probably phrase some of these things in a way that's a little bit less cumbersome. But if you get the, you start putting a bunch of um, fours in there. When I say four, I mean I mean like F O R. Christ died for sins. You don't understand the relationship between the death and sin because four is a notoriously ambiguous word. And so I've, you know, I understand some of it is worded a little bit in a way that is cumbersome, but it's trying to to is. Is trying to be very specific in what the argument is, which is, I think, what suffers in this space. Yes, sir. Yeah, there's they're they're quiet on that. That it may be, it may not be. They're quiet on that one. I mean, some people, um, and, and frankly, uh. It, Theologians of all stripes who have different views of hell, the more traditional view, eternal conscious torment, your annihilationists, your universalists, all of them have varying various understandings of whether the flames are literal. I mean, the New Testament gives pictures that they don't seem particularly interested in reconciling, right? So is hell fire or is it the blackest darkness? Is hell being cast out from the presence or is it a place where the worm never dies? Or does the worm not die outside of the presence where the fire is burning? It's kind of like, well, you know what? These are pictures for, it's not like, some people are relieved to hear that, by the way. Oh, maybe it won't be a literal part. It's not a, it's not a picture of like a beach vacation. Hell is, is to be indescribably awful. That's the picture. And so whether or not they believe that uh, it will be uh, um at literally fire or something like that. Yeah, they, they, they don't have to, they're not committed to that. I don't think anyone is actually committed to that either. So, and but but it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be. I just don't think the images, the images is, is eternal conscious suffering and torment. And that's what would be conjured up by something like uh, fire. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, in the run of history. In the run of history. Not from the foundation of the world, though. Yeah, in the run of history, Ephesians chapter 2, right? We were, like the rest of them, objects of wrath. Okay, so in the run of history, yes. In the plan of God, no. 
course, well, I say that in the plan of God, then you get into the decrees, superlapsarian versus infralapsarian. That's going to take us uh, out of the ballpark. But short answer, your, your question was in the run of history, and the answer is yes. In the run of history, uh, everyone who is not in Christ is an enemy of God. Any other questions about that? Yeah. Oh, those are just the uh, logical operators that can. Those are the those are the um, inference patterns, modus tollens, and disjunctive syllogism that unlock the. Yeah, th that's just the. Do what? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just, it's telling you what inference rule gets the conclusion. So there's not like, a, the reason I do it, like, there isn't just like, well, I just disagree. It's like, well, I'm sorry, that tells me more about you. You got to pick a premise and say what's wrong with it. Because when you argue syllogistically, if the premises are true and it's a valid argument, then it ends up being a sound argument if it's persuasive for a couple other reasons. Then the, conclu the conclusion logically follows inescapably. So there isn't just like a, well, this or that. It's a very tight way to do it. So that's kind of why I do it like this, even though I know it's a little cumbersome. Any other questions about the master argument, either one of these two slides? I understand it's a, it's a longer piece of theology, longer piece of reasoning. Yes. The, the, the last slide? Yeah. Let's go back. How do I go back here? Let's see. Go back. So it seems there's a parallel when you're making to the Old Testament sacrifice and the atonement or the complicated New Testament sacrifice. Is there a difference in that in the Old Testament, the system through which atonement comes is contingent on the activity of the believer for that atonement to be accomplished? My question is, what was the scope of Old Testament uh, sacrifice? Was it for Israel, or, or was it for a subset of Israel? And is there a difference between that engagement and what you have in the New Testament, which is God preemptively, proactively sacrificing to accomplish His own? Is, is there a, a means connection in the Old Testament that isn't found in the New Testament? Um, maybe so. Uh, so let's see. So in this part of, I think, um, let's see. so. Well, let's let's do it this way. So which question is that? Which premise is that question directed at? So I think I'm going to this one. Which which one? The, the, the one that's on the screen. So there's 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 three though. That genuinely accomplishes it. Yeah, yeah, correct, yeah. So my question is, in the, because the sacrifice isn't God giving himself in human flesh, but it's proactive and ahead of the game plan, if you will, there seems to be a means connection 
by which there is atonement, that the atonement is brought by the people, whereas in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, the atonement is brought preemptively by God and not by the people. Well, yeah, so you might... No, I don't think they are. But the strength of this argument, as I've tried to craft it, is that it only depends on one parallel. That's so. There's, I think, there's a lot of different parallels. You could also say, well, the the the, per, the, the in the Old Testament that the people bring the sacrifice, but they're not the one in many. Well, I mean, they could bring it to the priest, right? Who's going to, uh, at the very least, officiate, or if not perform directly, uh, officiate the sacrifice. And so they're still making sacrifice. But yeah, I don't think I think there's a plenty of um, plenty of differences. I think there is disanalogy, certainly. Uh, but I think the one, the, I understand the strength of the argument to be a minimalist commitment to just if this one parallel is there, then the argument goes through. Does that make sense? Like there are a bunch of other all the points you made. I think are uh, you're, you're spot on. But the reason I was pressing you for which premise is because. So long as the one, so long as there is this particular parallel, atonement accomplishes its effect. And and that and I guess the question is preemptively or post. It seems it's postemptive in the Old Testament or preemptive. Well, so when from the time the atonement is made. Right, so you you say when you're saying preemptive, you're talking about before the atonement's made, someone comes along and offers it, right? So you know it, there's a there's a thought process of the person comes and they offer their atonement and they approach the, ta- the the temple and such, right? But once the atonement's made, right, we have atonement made, then the effects follow. Is that your understanding? Yeah. So 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 once the atonement is made. Whatever the purpose of that and the scope of it follows, and so long as that parallel holds, the argument holds. So with a lot of other differences that you're pointing out. Really good question, though. Very good question. Anything else on this one? All right. If you have questions about this, please let me know. Let me just go through a couple other things real quick. We're not going to be able to finish up today. We'll finish up next time, but... Uh, it's really important that you, um, oh, I was like, what? I thought we already did this. Sorry. All right. Okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about a couple things here. This is, so the master argument, let me just pause and say, you might say something like Tyler, whoo, that was a lot of explaining to try to, you know, stand up this point. I mean, and some people get nervous when there's a lot of explaining because it sounds like explaining something away or coming up with an intellectual magic trick or something like that. Like, and, uh, I've, I've tried to, you know, just because certain things entail certain things uh, logically does not mean that you're doing magic tricks theologically. But some people, nevertheless, they're going to go to that master argument and say, whew, that's just not straightforward enough for me. I don't care what you say. I don't care about the laws. I just, that's just too much. So what about some of the in these individual passages that don't really have to do anything with, well, therefore it stands to reason or whatever? The first you might thing you might point to is all of the passages that talk about Christ laying his life down for the sheep and the church and us. Now, let me just say that I think that simply pointing to these is a common Calvinist mistake. 
Why? Because, as your Logic 101 teacher will certainly agree, just because Christ died for the sheep, it does not follow that he did not die for anybody else. Okay? If I tell you that I you know, got a son, uh, a son, I got a toy for my son, it does not follow that I did not also get one for my daughter. It just tells you that I'm focused, and for whatever reason, I'm communicating my son's part of that. Okay? So I just don't think that logically you can get to Christ gave his life up for the sheep because you have to add, and nobody else, which is, of course, the whole argument. So that kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Doesn't it kind of assume what you're trying to say? However, so here's a better way to do this. Here's a better way to do this. Uh, it's not to say, look, it says this, therefore it's only this. That just doesn't follow. I'm sorry, it doesn't follow. But here's what you might want to ask. Surely, if he died for a bunch of people who are not sheep, we need an explanation for the overwhelming amount of language um, that limits who he died for that doesn't so easily accommodate the general universal language, okay? And not the other way around. But let me, let me, uh, let me give you an example. I have it written out here because I knew I wouldn't remember it exactly. Um, imagine that I provided scholarships for every student at some university, okay? Wouldn't it be odd for me to be constantly drawing my attention to my love for philosophy majors by focusing on the fact that I gave them scholarships? You know, you know how my love is demonstrated for these philosophy majors that I love so much? I finance their education. Wouldn't that be a strange thing to say if I really financed everyone else's education too? Wouldn't that be a strange piece of evidence to bring out? As here's evidence that I love philosophy majors. I gave them all scholarships when I actually gave everybody scholarships. Wouldn't, wouldn't that require some like, isn't that a very, ten, isn't there some tension there? That's how I think the, the, this particular point needs to be argued. That does not follow logically and escapably that Jesus gave up his life for the sheep, therefore he gave them up only for the sheep. That's just a question-begging assertion, okay? What, what the, the question that needs to be asked is, over and over and over, we are told that Christ's demonstration of love for the church is teased out in atonement. Is teased out in atonement that he made for his sheep, the church, the peop his people, us, etc. But if, but remember, on the indefinite atonement view, Jesus did that. Die, the atonement has the exact same effect for everyone in the whole world. Okay, Christ died for everyone in the same way. Okay, that that's that is the view of indefinite atonement or unlimited atonement or whatever the case may be, that Christ died for everyone in the exact same way. But if that's the case, it just seems very, very odd that what is marshaled forward over and over and over again as demonstration in Exhibit A of God's love is this atonement for the sheep when, in fact, he actually made that atonement for everyone else too. Does that make sense? That's a much, that's a much more nuanced and I think a much more powerful way to make that argument. Instead of just saying, look, it said he died for sheep. It means only sheep. That's just not good. Okay. All right, finally, this is the last one. And I have a, I have a, uh, a, a single text argument. Now, let's just push through these two real quick so we can get to the objections next time and close up. Uh, I'll apologize to the nursery folks. Here, I'm going to run through this one real quick. 
This is another syllogistic argument from Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Let me read it first. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. So we're talking about Christ's once for all sacrifice. Here's what it says. And by the way, I really was spoiled for options here. Really, it's you could do Hebrews 9 through 10 for this argument. You could just pick a couple of places. But here's how this works. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living curtain that he opened for us through... I'm sorry, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh... And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. First of all, we hear all that active language, like things are actually happening with the sacrifice and with the priest. Okay, And we have confidence to enter the holy place. But why, though? Okay, That is by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through the flesh. And since we have a, and he is the high priest over that. Here's the argument. Okay, if Jesus didn't intercede as high priest for everyone for whom he shed atoning blood, then we can't have confidence to enter the holy place. Why is that? Well, because you have if you have atoning blood but no intercession on the basis of that blood as the high priest, what good is that? What good is that? Christ's. But we, we do have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Okay, we can have that confidence. That's exactly what Hebrews 10, 19 says. And that means that Jesus intercedes as high priest for everyone for whom he shed atoning blood. Jesus shed blood for X. Jesus intercedes as high priest for X. That's the idea. There is a correlation between bloodshed and his mediatorial role as high priest. That's why we can have confidence in the blood to enter, because he is the high priest over the new covenant. That's the idea, okay? But here's the thing. Jesus does not intercede as high priest for everyone. He doesn't intercede for high, as high priest for everyone. Jesus does not intercede before the Father for people who are in hell, who are headed to hell, people who have never heard of Jesus. And what follows from that then? What follows is Jesus didn't shed atoning blood for everybody because he doesn't intercede for everybody and everyone for whom he shed blood, he intercedes. Very quickly, Romans 8.32 is the exact same argument in one verse. Romans 8.32 is this exact argument I just laid out in one verse. Okay? And that's this. Let me read Romans 8.32. Of course, comes in this beautiful context uh, of... Um, the electing grace of God, the Spirit helping us in our weakness, the golden chain here, being predestined and called and all the rest. He says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And now listen to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You're like, oh wait, that's, 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 that's general, that's universal redemption, right? Oh, we've got to finish the verse. What does it say? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What does that verse teach? It teaches this. Everyone for whom Christ was given up receives all things. You see that? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Everyone for whom Christ was given up receives all things. That's what Paul's saying. Okay? All things are going to be related to salvation here. All the commentators agree. But not everyone receives all things. Therefore, Christ wasn't given up for everybody. Everyone for whom Christ was given up receives all things. Not all people receive all things. Therefore, Christ wasn't given up. That one is as, that one is as straightforward as possible right there. Modus tollens. Okay. I appreciate the time. I know I went over a little bit. I understand that sometimes some of this can be kind of head-scratching. and Like, what on earth is that? It's an eyesore. Um, but uh, I hope this is helpful in terms of outlining these things. I'll just say, I'll just say this before we turn to the, univer the, the universal unlimited atonement text and be like, well, what is this? This seems to contrast with what you're saying. Is that I think this is the one of the areas in uh, Reformed theology, the one doctrine of grace, where the, the sloppiest arguments get made. I don't have a problem saying that. I've read a ton of arguments that I'd agree with the I agree with the conclusion, definite atonement, very bad, in my opinion, reasoning to get there. And so that's why I've structured some of these things the way I've structured, because it really forces you to say exactly what you mean by these words and these concepts and what's going on here. Thank you for the uh, extra couple of minutes. Let's, uh, let's pray. God, thank you for, for meeting with us. Um, I pray that, uh, some of what at least was discussed today would stick, that would be helpful, that would be memory pegs for people. Um, and that, again, it would not just be some kind of intellectual exercise. We're thankful for atoning blood that actually works and that is actually effective, um, and that actually cleanses and purifies from the foundation of the world. And we pray that regardless of where we are in our walk, Regardless of where every person in this room is with their regard to their relationship to you, that we would take one step forward closer to Christ on the merit of his blood. Be with us in our next hour of worship in Jesus' name. Amen.